number of years ago, I was, uh, I was reading a book about uh, preaching, as pastors are, uh, tend to do at times. Uh, uh, and, it, and it was written by a fairly well-known pastor. He was giving his best advice, I suppose, on, on what pastors should do to preach effective sermons. And um, one of the things that he said was that, uh, that a pastor ought to be able to, to summarize their, their entire sermon in a, a single memorable statement. Uh, and really what he was driving at was, that, you know, if the pastor can't give the main point of a sermon in a simple statement, then everyone listening probably isn't going to be able to do that either. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think there's something to that idea. I think he's, he's, he's on to something there. But, but I, I couldn't help but think about what is probably the most famous sermon ever given. It's the sermon by Jesus, typically called the Sermon on the Mount. And I was thinking, man, if I, if I was to summarize that entire sermon in a simple, memorable statement, I really don't know what, I would, what that statement would be because there's so much there. I, I think if you ask 10 Bible scholars to summarize the Sermon on the Mount in one sentence, you'll probably get 10 very different sentences from those scholars. In that sermon, Jesus, he spoke on a whole wide array of, of different topics, Every, everything from uh, being blessed for being persecuted to anger, to divorce, to prayer, to anxiety, to judging others, to the golden rule. I mean, Jesus definitely broke that pastor's rule, I think, about, about being able to summarize a whole sermon in a single statement. Now, we'll give Jesus a pass, right? I think he knew what he was doing in preaching that sermon. Um, and especially because it wasn't just to be heard that day, it was to be studied for 2,000 plus years after that. But, uh, but, but what, I, what I would like each of us to do is imagine ourselves there that day. Imagine ourselves on the hillside as Jesus is giving that sermon. All right, imagine that we're listening to Jesus preach. And we can imagine that we're about halfway through his sermon. He's already covered a dozen or so unique topics. And then he transitions into a section on prayer. He talked about not praying one way. He said, don't, don't pray like the Gentiles do with many words, in public settings to be heard and seen by others. Instead, Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Right? He says, don't pray this way, this is how you should pray. And, and I, can just, I can just kind of picture all of the note takers in the crowd at that moment when Jesus prefaces what's going to be the Lord's Prayer, this is how you should pray, right? feverishly pulling out their pens and paper, and like, not, probably not really, then, but you get the picture, right? Like, okay, man, this, whatever he's going to say next, we need to make sure we got so, so this is what Jesus went on to say. He said, pray like this. And then again, this is from Matthew chapter 6. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
And then I can just picture it, you know, all the note takers are feverishly trying to make sure they get all that down. And then Jesus goes on and makes another statement right after that. And it's almost as if it's a quick tangent or an afterthought. It would have been easy to miss if a person was lost in thought about the prayer that Jesus had just given them to pray. Immediately after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says this. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then as quickly as Jesus began a statement about forgiveness, he's on to the next topic about fasting. And then the, the, proceeding, the topics that come after that. I, and I, I just, I can't help but wonder, as I try to put myself there, what would have been like that day? I can't help but wonder how many people that day grasped the immense weight of that short statement which Jesus made about forgiveness. Wouldn't it have been so easy to have kind of missed it in, in its placement in the middle of all of those other topics? I, I just kind of wonder about, those, about something like that. I would say if, if by chance Jesus' statement was missed by someone on that day, the day of that famous sermon, he made sure during another teaching that it would be impossible to miss that same type of statement. And in fact, he tells a story later on to highlight his point, and the story is so crazy that a person couldn't possibly overlook what he was saying. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew 18. That's where we are going to be this morning. We're going to spend our time looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant. I don't know if pastors can have favorite parables or not, but this, this would be mine. This would be, if I had to pick a favorite one, this is the one I would pick. We're going to spend our time this morning progressing through the story, trying to make sure that we, we don't miss any of what Jesus is saying to us. And so I really would encourage you to have your Bible open this morning or, or, or the Bible app on your phone. Um, that way you can not just listen to me read the words, but, but also have your eyes on them too, to really follow along with what Jesus is saying, allowing that to, to strike deep within us. So... So we're going to start through it, go through it little by little. Matthew chapter 18, and uh, the, uh, the scene begins in verse 21. So Matthew 18, 21. Um, it's page 823 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to look there. It says, Then Peter came up and said to them, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, we'll stop right there. Before we go any further, we have to recognize that um, Peter's question didn't just come out of left field. He, he's asking this question in response to what Jesus had just taught them. And we know this not just because of the order of Matthew's gospel, but, but even the very wording of Peter's question reveals that. P Peter is asking about forgiving a brother who has sinned against him. And if you look back at verse 15, and this is the passage that, uh, that we read earlier in the service, in verse 15, Jesus just spoke about what to do when a brother sins against you. Right? This is the teaching where Jesus gives instruction on, 
how to approach a brother or sister in Christ who has sinned against us. We're given direction about first going to them individually, uh, um, and then if they don't respond humbly to that, we, we take along another person or two, and if they still don't respond, then we take the matter to the church, and if they still don't respond, they're to be treated as one who, who hasn't truly received salvation from God. And the intention in, in, in the whole process is for reconciliation to happen. That, that, that's the intention in all of that. Reconciliation between the person who sinned and God, that's first, and then reconciliation between the person who sinned and the one sinned against. That's the goal in all of that. And it seems like Peter must have been chewing on that, thinking about the practicality of that whole thing, because then he asks Jesus that question. Peter seems to know that humans are stubborn, that we're fallen people who can be slow to change. And so he wanted to know, well, how many times I need to forgive somebody when they sin against me? I think Peter said, okay, well, we could go through that whole thing, but they might sin against me again, so we, do we go through that thing again? And, and you know, Peter says, okay, so seven times, you know, should we forgive them seven times? That, that seems like that might be sufficient. And I... We're not told exactly why Peter chose seven. Uh, we're just not told that. I, I, I wonder if uh, th- there was rabbinic teaching at that time that, uh, that taught this. This is what the rabbis taught. said, if a man sins once, twice, or three times, they forgive him. If he sins a fourth time, they do not forgive him. So I don't... It's hard to know where the rabbi is teaching that that's what should be done. Once you've forgiven three times, then that's enough. Were they just observing human nature that, you know, most people forgive three times, but then after that, probably not. Whatever it was, I mean, Peter said seven, you know, more than doubled what either was commanded or what human nature might have been, right? Surely seven is pretty good, right? Well, Jesus' response to that is in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. 77. When Jesus says 77 times, or 70 times seven, depending on on the translation you're, you're reading from, he's not expecting Peter to make a checklist so that he knows once he's reached that limit. Right? That, that, that's not what Jesus is driving at. Jesus' point is that his followers are to be people who forgive others, who forgive others as many times as forgiveness is needed. That there shouldn't be a number put on it. And, and instead of just leaving things there, Jesus went into a parable. He, he told a story that, that so perfectly illustrates how his followers ought to be impacted by forgiveness both in being forgiven and in being forgiving. And, and both are important, and the order of those two things is important, being forgiven and being forgiving. So let's look at this story that Jesus went into. This is verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
So, so Jesus begins, he's saying that this story that I'm telling, it's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. He, he intends to reveal how forgiveness is meant to be received and given in his kingdom. And, and because the church is the place on earth where God's kingdom is to be lived out and put on display, Jesus is telling us what forgiveness ought to look like among his people, among his church. So he tells a story about a king. There's a king who wants to settle financial accounts with his servants, and he brings one in, and this, this particular servant owes him 10,000 talents. Now, does anybody have the exchange rate memorized from talents to dollars? <laughs> I sure didn't, right? That, that's not a common calculation that we make. The, the footnote in, uh, in the ESV tells us that a talent is worth about 20 years' wages for the average worker. Now, if we're going to allow this parable to hit us like it would have hit Jesus' disciples, then we have some math that we need to do. Okay? And, and you, can, you can rest confident this morning. My kids are all in school, and I'm the one that gets to help with math homework. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm ready for this. I've been, I've been getting practice helping them with that. But... We gotta figure out what would 10,000 talents be in, in, for us, right? So that we can hear this correctly. So, so we can start the whole big math problem by, by setting the pay for the average worker. We're talking about an average worker. So if we take Illinois minimum wage, that would be $13 an hour. So if you work for eight hours at $13 an hour, that nets a total of $104 a day. So we might say that an average worker today here in Illinois, if you're making minimum wage, you make $104 a day. In the time of Jesus, a, a work week consisted of six days a week. You'd work for six days, you'd rest on the seventh. So if you worked six days a week for a year, it would be roughly 600, 600 to 300. I, I promise you the math is right right here. <laughs> 300 days worked a year. So if you work for eight hours a day, 300 days out of the year, you'd make $31,200 for the year. That'd be your annual pay. Now a single talent is 20 years wages. So if you multiply 31,200 by 20, you would get $624,000. So one talent would be equivalent to $624,000. But this guy wasn't in debt one talent. He was in debt 10,000 talents. So if you do that final calculation, we understand that this man was approximately $6.24 billion in debt. Give or take 20 bucks, right? I mean, $6.24 billion in debt. And we effectively can't really imagine that, right? I, I mean, the, the, we hear the word billion often enough, but, but $6.24 billion. I want to try to give some context to the size of that debt. So he said he makes $31,200 a year. That'd be the average yearly salary. Let, let, let's say he found a way to put $25,000 of that salary towards his debt. 
which is a large percentage. But let's say he put $25,000 a year toward his debt. He would be able to pay it off in 249,600 years. I mean, that's, and that's with no interest, by the way. I'm being generous here. That's no interest. That's crazy. Now, if we kind of take it a little farther, if you really pinched, pinched pennies and, and found a way to set aside $25,000 every month, let's say somehow you could put $25,000 a month toward that debt, you'd pay it off in 20,800 years. Every month, paying $25,000. And if you really got crazy and could pay $25,000 a day on that debt, it'd take you 684 years to pay it off. $25,000 a day, which is effectively impossible for that servant. But, I mean, that the amount that this guy is in debt is just incredible. It's unthinkable in some ways. Some Bible scholars have noted that a talent was the largest unit of monetary measurement at that time, and 10,000 was the largest Greek numeral at that time. So effectively, Jesus is showing that this servant's debt is as big as it could possibly be, the biggest number and the biggest monetary unit. I mean, it makes me ask, how'd this guy even get that far in debt, right? I mean, I think it's a valid question, but, but that's, not what, that's not what the story of the parable is about. It doesn't really matter how this guy got that far in debt. Those details aren't given to us. What we need to recognize is just the gravity of it, the immense size of the debt. So Jesus goes on, verse 25. And since he could not pay, (laughs) there's an understatement, right? (laughs) Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now let's not be too gullible here when when we hear this guy's statement. I mean, even if this common working man could somehow find $25,000 a day to pay back to the king, it'd take him 684 years to do it, which is longer than he's going to live. This guy is blowing hot air when he says, I'll pay it back. I mean, he just is. The the king sure wouldn't have believed that statement. No way that king believes that, oh, okay, you say you're going to pay it back. I believe you. No. I don't even think the servant would have believed his own statement. And, and I mean, maybe he's so self-centered and delusional that he thinks he can do it. I, I don't know. But I kind of doubt he even believes that he can pay back that huge amount. But regardless, it never came to that. It never came to that. Verse 27, out of pity for him. And again, is the pity because the Servant's so delusional is the pity because he's so far in debt we're just not told. But out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. King had pity on the servant. And again, don't know the reason, but he had pity and he both released the servant and forgave him. And, and both of those things are important. 
releasing and forgiving. The servant was released. I mean, the king had every right to throw this guy in jail so that he couldn't, couldn't go out and swindle money from anybody else ever again. But rather than hold him captive, the king let him go. He released him, and the king forgave the servant's debt. I mean, the debt, which was impossible to pay back. doesn't matter if this guy thinks he can do it. It's impossible to pay it back. But it was wiped from his record. I mean, that kind of debt being forgiven was life-changing. For the servant, no doubt, but, but for the king, even. I mean, for the king to give up that much that is owed to him. Every detail in this story is, is just meant to hit us right between the eyes. But it's not just a fairy tale to tell a child before bed. It's not just kind of this interesting story. This is, this is a story painting a picture of the kingdom of God and painting a picture of the king of the kingdom of God, who is God. So while you and I are not financially in that kind of debt, we are spiritually in that kind of debt. Our sin against God has left us with a burden so large that it could not be any bigger and cannot possibly be made right under our own effort. I mean, when you and I look at our sin, we ought to feel just as helpless as the servant is in this story. We look at him and say, there's no way he's paying that back. He can't do it. That's how we ought to view our sin as well. We cannot pay that debt on our own. And maybe we've tried responding like the servant has done. Maybe we've fallen on our knees and begged for patience from God and promised that we'll make it right. Jesus, I'll, I'll, I'll fix this. I'll do what I need to do. Maybe, maybe we've done that. But we've got to be honest with each other. We've got to be honest with ourselves. I'm never going to be able to make things right. <laughs> You're never going to be able to make things right. Our debt due to sin is just that big. We can't. And God's response, as we humble ourselves before him in light of that, in God setting us free and forgiving our debt, his response is that much bigger than our debt because of sin. Our only hope is, is to have our debt wiped clean. I mean, that, that, that is the only hope that we have. It's the only hope the servant had. It's the only hope that we have. God's forgiveness is his gift to us. It's not by our own works, that is for sure. I mean, this picture in the parable paints that for us so well. It's not our own works. When we humble ourselves before him, we were in position to receive that incredible life-changing gift of forgiveness. I mean, when we talk about being forgiven, as followers of Jesus, the first part of this parable paints that picture of just how awesome that forgiveness is. And for as awesome as that first scene in the parable is, the second scene is maybe equally as troubling. I mean, look at how it goes on from that point. So the servant has been forgiven, and then we read verse 28. But 
When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. We did one math problem, now we've got another one. This one's not quite as bad. A denarius was a single day's wage. A single day's wage. And we already said working eight hours, $13 an hour, that'd be $104 a day. So, so if you multiply 100 days working times that, it's, it's $10,400. So this, this other servant owed the first servant $10,400. That's not insignificant, right? You know, if you owed me $10,000, that matters. (laughs) But that total is ridiculously small when you compare it to 10,000 talents. And I was trying to come up with, with a visualization to help with that comparison, comparing the two debts. You know, how we can maybe grasp a little bit just how much bigger the one is than the other. So I had to do a little bit more math, but uh, here, here's what I've got. So, so to represent the smaller debt, I've got a five milliliter eyedropper here. But the amount of liquid representing the smaller debt is not this entire eyedropper. Uh, I don't even have it nearly full. The, the amount representing the smaller debt is not that. It's this, one drop. One drop, we'll say, represents the smaller debt, that hundred denarii. And if that represents the one debt, the smaller one, then these 29 pitchers of water full represent the larger debt. That's the difference that we're talking. One drop compared to all of that. I don't even know if we'd go through all of this at church lunch today when we're all drinking. I mean, to kind of help us visualize just how much that is. I mean, it's crazy, the disparity between those two things. So how does the servant respond who's been given, been forgiven all of that and is owed just that? How does that servant respond? Well, we can continue in verse 28. So he's owed 100 denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How? Why? I mean, what's going on in that first servant's heart? He can't forgive such a small debt when compared to his own. I mean, isn't that the question that we ask? Like, what is that guy thinking? I mean, I, I think one thing might be, I might be confident to, um, to suggest is that he's proven he doesn't truly understand what had happened earlier. <laughs> Hadn't really hit him the debt that he had been forgiven. Even though it was incredibly large, it hadn't really sunk into his heart. I don't know if he despised the king for some reason. I don't, I don't know if he just took for granted the debt that had, that had been forgiven. I, 
I mean, his life was just changed dramatically by that king's mercy, and yet, yet his heart seems like it remained dead, cold. I mean, you'd, you'd, you'd even think that when the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with the same line that that first servant had spoken to the king, it's the same wording, you'd think his brain would have made that connection, like, oh yeah, I said that earlier, and was that, but... But no, his heart is so corrupted that it, it can't be bothered with those details, you know, that here this servant's saying the same thing that I just said. I mean, it, we got to be honest. There are things people do to us. People sin against us, to use the language of, of Jesus' teaching and Peter's question. And in those circumstances, it can, it can, we can struggle to forgive one another, can't we? the pain, the embarrassment, the, the, the trauma, the sadness, the loss that we experience, whatever it might be, it can, it can cloud our memory of our own sins and the forgiveness that we've received from God. And I wish it wouldn't happen in my own, in my own mind, in my own heart, but it does. And, and I think we've probably all been there. And when that happens, we need to be reminded of this parable over and over again. Be reminded of what this parable communicates, right? Our, our heart grows harder and harder when we withhold forgiveness after we've been shown such incredible mercy. Now, I, I, I do wanna give a quick disclaimer here. There, there, are incredibly, there are incredibly difficult and damaging situations that a person might go through situations that maybe some of us here today have, have gone through or, or are currently going through, things, things like abuse or violence or, or deep betrayal. And those things require appropriate responses, right? For, forgiveness must never be weaponized in a situation like that. And it must never be used to manipulate a person to, to keep them in the midst of further suffering. And so... Uh, Forgiveness does not allow sin to continue on. I want to make sure that I say that this morning. The Holy Spirit working within us is powerful enough to, to bring us to a place of forgiveness for anything that has been done to us. It is possible. But, but in the case of abuse or, or other things, it's never a license for that, that abuse to continue. So I want to make sure to to make that distinction this morning as we're talking about forgiveness. But you know, as we think about this, this story, the, the debt that the first uh, servant was forgiven, the way in which he responded to his fellow servant then later, we, we might have a strong reaction to that, right? We might, we might read about what he did, choking his fellow servant, throwing him in jail, and just be like, what is he doing? And, and if you and I have a strong reaction, we're not alone in that. Look with me at verse 31. Pick it up where we left off. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And I think we could understand why. You know, I, I think I would be too. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. I mean, the king was floored at the response of this servant. And and I think we would say, rightly so. And the pity which the king had in verse 27 transformed into anger in verse 34. And notice the the complete reversal, not only of the king's emotion, but, but the servant's situation is completely reversed then as well. You know, I pointed out earlier in verse 27 that that the servant was released and forgiven by the king. And then here in verse 34, the servant is now bound in jail and the debt has returned. He's told to pay it. I mean, as this servant sat in prison, he had no one to blame but himself. He had no one to blame but himself. It wasn't his debt that put him there. By this point, the debt could have been forgiven. There was that, that path, that avenue, but he was there because he, was, he refused not just to not forgive the servant, his fellow servant, but he refused to accept what the king had offered to him. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. He did not accept what the king offered to him, that forgiveness. Which which leads us to, I think, what is perhaps the most troubling statement in this whole story. If a person missed it the first time on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, I don't think they're going to miss it here. Jesus goes on and makes makes a similar statement in verse 35. He says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is what the entire parable is driving toward. This is what answers that question uh, that Peter asked at the very beginning. Peter says, how many times do I need to forgive someone? Really, we can stop forgiving people whenever we want to. We can just choose to say, well, no, I'm not going to forgive you anymore. It's too much. I can't do it. But what we're going to find is that we're not following in the steps of our Father, right? And Jesus says, your heavenly Father is not going to forgive you when you refuse to forgive others. And I'll I'll be honest with you, there's there's theology to wrestle with in that verse, for sure. I mean, it isn't salvation by grace alone, apart from works. We know that. I mean, Scripture is abundantly clear on that. So if, if if my unforgiveness hinders God's forgiveness of me, then doesn't that bring my works into it somehow? I mean, I, 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 I know that salvation doesn't come just because I forgive somebody else, right? That's not how it works. If, if, if I own a shoe store and somebody steals a pair of shoes from me and I just say, well, okay, well, you're forgiven. I, I, it doesn't, that doesn't all of a sudden make me forgiven, right? I'm not saved from my sins. I don't experience salvation just because I've forgiven somebody else. We know that that's not how it works. But what does Jesus mean when he's talking to his disciples, telling them that if they are unforgiving, their heavenly Father will respond to them just like the king did to the servant in the parable? I I think at the very least, it means that we must take seriously Jesus' call to be people who forgive. 
uh, it's not a bonus characteristic. We don't get like an extra crown in heaven that's a special one just because we forgave while we were on earth, that it's extra credit kind of a thing. It drives at the heart of the gospel message. One, uh, one study Bible uh, had this statement I thought was interesting. said, someone who does not forgive others shows that in his own heart he's not experienced God's forgiveness. I thought, man, that, that, is, that ought to hit us between the eyes, right? As much as the, the size of the debts ought to hit us between the eyes, that kind of a statement. I mean, if, if, if we've truly been forgiven of our incredible debt of sin, and if we've truly understood grasped the forgiveness that God has offered to us, then our only right response is to be forgiving toward others. It's really the only way we, sh- we ought to properly respond to what God has done. We cannot be forgiven by God and not be forgiving of others. The two things don't go together. There shouldn't be any way that we can rationalize it or write it off or, or, or make those two things fit together. They don't. If we've been forgiven by God, we must be forgiving of others. I mean, this is, this parable, I, maybe you can see why it's my favorite. I mean, it just, it drives that point home so well. We think about forgiveness in our own life, what we've received. And it drives us to the table this morning. So I'm gonna have the elders come forward as we prepare to take communion. I I said earlier that the order of things matters. Being forgiving must come after being forgiven. First thing we must ask ourselves is, If we've received God's forgiveness, have I received that? Have I come to God on my knees knowing that there's no possible way that I can ever make things right with the debt that I owe? And have I opened myself to his loving kindness, recognizing how how his forgiveness changes everything in my life? That's what we celebrate at the table this morning. The bread and the juice, are, 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 they're, they're symbols of and they are a remembrance of the forgiveness that we've been given. We, we participate in this meal together on a, on a recurring basis because we need to. We, we, we must not forget the incredible debt that has been expunged from our record. We can't forget that. It is big as it it could possibly be, and Jesus released us from it and forgave us of it. That's incredible. That's what the table reminds us of each time we come to it. And then the next thing we ought to ask ourselves is, am I showing that same forgiveness to others? Has God's forgiveness so impacted me that, that it's overflowing in my forgiveness of others? And if it's not, if, if there's a place where I, or I just I, I can't forgive, then I really need to go back to question number one and say, God, do, do, am I truly grasping what you've done in my life? Help me understand that more. Help me to be more humble when I think about this debt that you've paid in my own life. Because being forgiven and being unforgiving 
don't go together. They don't work together. And so if I find myself in that place, I need to go back to that first question and say, God, help me to grasp even more deeply what you've done for me. Now, now forgiving one another is a journey. We've, that's kind of a common, common phrase that forgiveness is a journey. It is. It's a complex journey. It's, it's, it's filled with blind corners that can catch us by surprise. But it's a journey that starts at the cross. It has to start at the cross. If, if the shadow of forgiveness that is cast by Jesus hanging on the cross does not transform us, then Jesus says you, you have a right to be fearful of that king. And so as, as we come to the table this morning, we, let's be overwhelmed by the forgiveness that we find here because it's truly incredible. I mean, it is and, and, and this isn't even enough. <laughs> I mean, there, there could be more. But the forgiveness we are given by God is incredible. And let's ask God, well, we thank God for what he's done, but also ask him to impress even more deeply upon us just how awesome it is that we would then be forgiven people who forgive people. Because that's what's meant to go together being forgiven people who forgive people. That's what we're called to. So let's come to the table together this morning.